Welcome to the Cardiac Exchange by Medtronic. Welcome to the podcast on coronary bypass surgery. And today we have an esteemed faculty with Professor Theresa Kieser from Calgary, Professor Mark Rail from Ottawa, and Dr. John Puskas from New York. So we're going to discuss, you know, um, a, a procedure that is now almost six years of age. So a long history here. And we still see changes being made in coronary bypass surgery to make the outcome better, which is very important because, you know, percutaneous coronary revascularization is another alternative treatment uh, that you could offer to patients. Um, and we're going to discuss the pros and cons of coronary bypass surgery, um, that maybe a little bit also the, the, the advantages of a less invasive approach. Um, and, um, and so therefore this esteemed faculty has a broad knowledge on coronary bypass surgery, but also about what the competition is doing, what cardiology is offering their patients. And so let's start here with, uh, you know, the trends that we see in coronary surgery. As I just mentioned, you know, it's a procedure that is almost 60 years old. It started in 1964. 1968 was Favoloro doing his coronary bypass surgery at the Cleveland Clinic. And so here we are, almost 60 years later, and still with the procedure that is the most common uh, cardiac surgery procedure in the world, but also one of the most common surgical procedures that has been done in the world. So maybe ask Teresa first. Teresa, so what are the trends that you still see in coronary surgery? Well, I, th I think there are early trends of increased arterial grafting, uh, but it's not where we really should see it. You know, um, uh, papers have shown that uh, anybody up to the age of 70 should be considered for bilateral arterial mammary grafting, and yet uh, only 5.4% still, uh, in North America anyway, have uh, double mammaries, whereas Europe is higher and Japan even higher still. So there are a few pockets of people that are really pushing this, and I think uh, I think it's going to get there, but it's it's hard to train people. If you've, come, you've grown up in a unit that doesn't do much bilateral mammaries or arterial grafting, period, it's hard to learn it. Yeah. It's the reason you always said, you know, you have to teach it young, at a young age. You have to learn it at a young age and uh, teach them when they're young. I know yes. that's one of your, you know. My favorite programs. quotes, get, get them young, train them right. Yeah. So <laughs> what, what is the right age and where you start training cardiac surgeons so that they keep practicing memory well, arthrograsting? Is it at the start of their, of their training or is it the end or no, how the, do you see that? You know, my mother used to say, you should start the way you mean to continue. And I remember teaching a resident, a first year resident, he had just been a medical student two weeks before, and I was teaching with a harmonic scalpel in the middle part of the mammary artery dissection. And my colleague who was harvesting a little bit of vein said, good gracious, I had to dump a thousand miles of vein before I, before I even touched a mammary. I said, that's the problem. That's the problem. Exactly. Yeah. And so, so maybe Mark, you know, when, when you teach people um, in coronary bypass surgery, young surgeons always look up towards, you know, aortic valve surgery, mitral valve surgery, um, and maybe coronary surgery. Is, is that something that is not sexy enough to teach them? Yeah, it, it's a great question, Peter. And I, I think, you know, uh, I think it's less and less regarded. Uh, as that, the level of complexity has obviously exploded in coronary surgery, and everyone realizes that. And I think every major institution in the world is looking 
uh, to have a coronary expert. And in many instances, they do not, right? Uh, so I would say this is more like a 1980s, 1990s type of uh, thinking. Uh, we're really moving now because of the complexities of the questions and the amount of literature, because it, it's such a wide field, right? If you want to be a heart team expert discussant with your colleagues in interventional cardiology or even on medical platforms, you need to know your stuff, right? You can't just be a deer in the headlights and say, well, I think I can graph this uh, OM2 and do the OM1 as well. well. Why? You know, what is the evidence basis behind this? So, so I think the field is changing. And, and I think uh, I'm hopeful that the young generation gets this and, and sees coronary surgery as something extremely complex. We all know that some of the operations in coronary surgery are, are the most difficult operations we, we ever do. Like I think NVST times three or four, there's nothing. I'd rather do a third time bentol calcified homograph with an abscess than doing that. Uh, I mean, it's reproducible, but it, the amount of minutia and detail that goes into it is on match, at least in my book, amongst any other operation in cardiac surgery. Right. Hence the point of needing specialists to do these things. Right? Yeah. And so is a resident nowadays, when, when they get trained in coronary bypass surgery, can they also do valve surgery, mitral aortic, dental surgery, um, transplants, or, or should you say residents should focus, you know, just on one of those parts of, of cardiac surgery? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question. I mean, there's, you know, there, there are aspects that are uh, for, for the practitioner, for the patient, and for society, and for the units, right? And um, you want to make sure that every major unit as a division chair has some redundancy, right? So you don't want just one person doing aortic valve repairs and one person doing minimal invasive cases because these are uh, tools that are in high demand, right? And people leave and people move around. So, so I think there has to be some redundancy. And I think you also, um, I wouldn't be ready to just do mixed cabbages day in and day out and nothing else, right? Uh, I think it's nice to, uh, a lot of techniques in, in cardiac surgery are transportable. Um, but yeah, can we still be in the age where everyone does everything? I think your point's very well taken. Absolutely not. I think there has to be some areas of foci. Right. And, and uh, maybe so to John Puskas then is that, you know, we discussed that it's, it's, it's very important to train people to do coronary surgery and the more complex coronary surgery. So they do it very often. Um, when it comes to off-pump surgery, is it also important then to train people um, to, do, to be able to do off-pump surgery when you're a dedicated coronary surgeon? You know, I think that the more technically demanding a, uh, an operation is, the more focused and specialized uh, the, the training needs to be. Um, and, and uh, you know, I think the jury is still out on how well the I-6 program is training uh, cardiac surgeons for the next generation. It's a gigantic, uncontrolled experiment. Um, and my experience thus far is that many residents are graduating from those programs having had a nice exposure to a, a lot of areas of uh, medicine, surgery, and cardiothoracic surgery, um, but they're not ready to practice any area of that uh, as, a, as a genuine expert. Um, and, and so I think that, you know, specialty training after the I-6 program, whether it be in aortic surgery or transplant or pediatrics or, or a coronary surgery, I, I think it's going to be necessary 
for us to maintain and even elevate the quality of care we deliver to patients. Um, so off-pump bypass surgery, to more specifically answer your question, uh, uh, Dr. Capitana, is, is that you know, it, it's a complex uh, uh, surgical task. It requires um, a different kind of mindset and a different set of manual skills. Um, and, uh, you know, it's what we shouldn't be doing is having people sort of make it up or re reinvent the wheel on their own uh, because the patients will suffer. And, and indeed, the procedure itself will suffer uh, from bad results and, the, and the, the perception that it doesn't generate good results, which is simply not true. Expertly performed uh, off-pump bypass, um, you know, has obvious advantages over expertly performed on-pump bypass. They both have important roles for different patient populations and in the hands of different surgeons, they both provide excellent outcomes uh, for patients. Um, but yes, does OPCAB require specialty training? The short answer is absolutely. Yeah, great. So, so the quality is, is important. Actually, that's what we're discussing here. How can you train surgeons in a way that they deliver the best quality um, and outcomes of coronary bypass surgery? So Teresa, uh, what is your, your, your ultimate goal, of course, for the individual patient, you know, you want them to get a, um, you know, out of the hospital um, in good condition. Um, how do you measure your outcome and make sure that you have the best quality in your care in coronary bypass surgery? Well, uh, because I'm principally a coronary surgeon, I have my own database and I, I track everything I do minutely. Uh, and when I started doing 98% telemetry grafting about 18 years ago, I measured the outcomes with every 100 then 500, then, you know, so I think you need to really have, have your own database. I mean, it just, of, of, of key things like mortality. I mean, you can get this from the group as well, but it's nothing like your own data that you have culled yourself and put into a database. I do this for valves as well. It's a lot of work, but it's really worthwhile. And you can, if anybody challenges you, you can, you can actually uh, uh, have something to prove, you know. But I, so. and how do how do you benchmark? Because you could you could look at your database, and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm happy, um, I, my survival rate is okay. But is there any well, kind I, of benchmark? Oh yes, I benchmark with the general literature. I know the the sternal wound infection rate is one to two percent. Deep sternal wound infection rate, and you compare with your own data mortality rate, your reoffer bleeding rate. There's many things you can use. You just keep an eye on yourself. And I and I've seen some of my colleagues actually doing this as well. Um, one had a little bit higher rate of infection, and he started using vancomycin powder, and his infection rate has cleared right up. So I think it's I think most people to do this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so it is, of course, extremely important to look at the long-term results. Uh, Mark, anything that you do intraoperatively um, to make sure that, you know, your bypass is working as, as intended? Oh, thanks, Peter. I completely agree with you and Teresa and John about the importance of a long-term follow-up. Really, this is the crux of the advantage brought by coronary bypass surgery, right? So we need to uh, validate and demonstrate that the long-term results are what they are. And, you know, you speak to family physicians or primary care physicians, depending on the jurisdiction that you're in, um, and they'll often tell you that they have these all these patients who had bypass surgery 25 years ago and who now are experiencing uh, ailments due to metastatic colon cancer or something like that, right? It's, it's usually you're changing uh, if 
bypass surgery is well done. You may be able to change the mode of death to whatever else will unfortunately afflict the patient at some point. So, so I think long-term data is tremendously important. We have a systematic dedicated follow-up clinic where we find those data. And it, even angiograms, right? Our cardiology colleagues um, will not always follow the patient's uh, long-term. Uh, they're often back to their family physician when they're doing well. And then they'll do angiograms and find you know, a diagonal that may have a more native disease or something like that. And then patient has CCR slash two, three angina. But we need to understand the denominator. These are numerators. We've gone back in my institution uh, at those repeat angiograms and less than 2% of patients, we even ever get an angiogram after surgery, right? So it's extremely right. rare. Anyways, back to your question. I'm sorry for going on a tangent, but we do have a little bit of time. Um, what do we do? Obviously, I think quality control is very important, maximizing the use of, of multiple arteriographs. But I'm not as, uh, probably not as adamant as uh, Thierry is or John might be with regards to that. I think we will still need evidence. I think we the evidence needs to be uh, produced uh, with regards to multiple arterial grafting. I used to be, I think, 10 years ago, if one of my colleagues would come and do a, a, a LITA plus three veins on a 55-year-old, I would think that, you know, this was a crime or so, quote-unquote, right? Um, I don't know if we can still say that. Right? I think you, it's uh, um, there's some data that it's still lacking with regards to uh, showing this. And I know Terry is is going to jump at me very, very, very soon <laughs> from saying that. I, I am a believer. I am a believer, but I would like more evidence. So again, to finish with your question, TTFM, obviously, graph control is tremendously important. Uh, so flow measurements. We, yeah, flow measurements. There's a piece coming out in circulation um, in uh, October 6th. Uh, that Mario, uh, John, and Terry and I uh, wrote together, and it's a state-of-the-art uh, paper in circulation. And I think it's needed for the field because we don't have as much tools of intraoperative validation, obviously, as uh, cardiologists do. And angiograms are good. I mean, we've used them, and I think all of us have tackled with intraop angiograms. But you get weird results, right? You get things that you don't really know how to interpret. And, and it's called edema, right? But it's not edema. It's not, I think, third spacing. I think what often happens, especially with small arteriographs, is you get a little bit of subadventitial hematomas, right? Uh, mm -hmm. That will make the lumen look a little bit different. And then you recontrol the angiogram and, and, and essentially you have... Um, uh, you yep. have this weird appearance. So uh, anyways, I think obviously validation of graphs and probably physiologic over anatomic using TTFM and maximizing the use of multiple arteriographs, albeit with the, ca with the caveat that we need more data. So, so that is controversial, Mark. Uh, I just want to uh, you know, point out that what you said is about arterial grafting. Uh, John, do you agree with what Mark said? No, arterial grafting is not always necessary. I almost always agree with Mark. In this, I'm going to gently disagree on that one point. Um, there's a very recent, um, I guess it's just barely published now in the European Heart Journal, the um, uh, post hoc analysis of multiple versus single arterial bypasses in the syntax trial, the syntaxes, uh, the, the, the 10 year follow up. And there's a striking mortality benefit for more than one arterial graft uh, compared to just Lima LED and veins. Um, that's not the first time that has been demonstrated. And again, it's a post hoc analysis. Patients weren't randomized in that fashion. They were randomized to have PCI or cabbage, not to have one or more arterial grafts. We are awaiting the outcomes of the Roma trial that Mario Gaudino has uh, put together. Um, but you know, that's going to be years in coming. 
uh, every yeah, but, but, but David Tegard, maybe John, can I jump in there? Because David Tegard, you know, he did a study 10 year follow up and he couldn't show a difference. Yeah. Well, but that, that study was, as you know, very flawed. Um, you know, the yeah. uh, the art trial uh, sought to randomize single mammary versus double mammary grafting with the intent of exploring the difference between one artery and two arteries in, in long term follow up, 10 year follow up with a primary endpoint of death. Uh, and, um, you know, unfortunately, about 40 percent of patients kind of fell out in the sense that um, uh, something on the order of um, uh, 15% of patients who were assigned to receive double mammaries actually got single mammaries. 23% of patients who were assigned to get single mammary got a single mammary plus a radial artery. Right. Um, you know, uh, about 4% of patients who were assigned to get single mammary actually got double mammary. Uh, yeah. You know, it was really a, a pot potpourri. Yeah. I think it demonstrated a profound lack of equipoise in the surgeons doing the trial. Um, okay. And in the end, the as treated analysis, that is to say, just comparing one artery versus more than one artery, looks a lot like the syntaxes trial in terms of mortality benefit. There is a striking mortality benefit in that group that received more than one artery compared to those that received a single artery. But if you look at it in the intent to treat analysis, because there was so much crossover, I mean, 40% is a stunning Absolutely. Uh, crossover, um, then, then uh, you know, the that message is 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 neutral or negative. Yeah. Uh, there's no there's no difference. But maybe you can also reason how we interpret that study because of the conduct of the study. Um, this is going to be great. So flawed. Yeah, but so so Teresa, we heard Mark saying, well, you know, you don't need to give every patient double memory artery grafting. John is a little bit more on the opposite side. Yeah, everybody should get it. What's yes, your opinion? Well, well, I'm certainly I side with John for sure, but I want to just put the cat amongst the pigeons here. And, you know, I've been watching patients coming for surgery and the drug eluding stents, if you just observe how long they have been working, there many of them are 10 plus years. So, you know, the vein grafts, uh, you know, if it's given 1996 studied more than 5,000 vein grafts, Tatulas in 2011 studied 3,200 vein grafts, and the patency was identical at 10 years and occlusion rate. The occlusion rate was 50% for Fitz's papers and 50.7% for Tatulus. So my premise, I am thinking that the saphenous vein grafts are being rivaled by drug eluting stents. Now, in 2003 in ATS Boston, Marty Leon got up, you can check out the records and said, drug eluting stents are going to put you surgeons out of business. Stenting is going to put you surgeons out of business. And Bruce Lionel got up and said, and of course, everybody went ballistic in the audience, like, what do you mean we're all going to not, not be have, have coronary surgery? And Bruce Lionel got up and said, guys, did you think you'd be doing the same operation for 100 years? Yeah, and so that, that, that's a good point. That's a good point. I so think there, we're going to yeah. lose the business if you keep doing vein grafts. Thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe at medtronic.com slash cardiac exchange to hear the next portion of this conversation and to find additional podcast content.